This program has been made possible through the support of Cruise, driving cities forward through their autonomous vehicle development. Learn more about how Cruise is transforming the future of transportation through improving our cities by building safe, shared, and all-electronic self-driving cars. Visit them online at getcruise.com. The American Council of the Blind has turned 60. Celebrate with us as we bring you continuing coverage of the 2021 Convention of the American Council of the Blind. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon or good morning, everyone. I'm Steve Mendelson, and I'm welcoming you to the ABIA ACBGE joint session. It's going to be a very exciting session, which we discuss a number of the intersecting legal and practical and technological issues affecting uh, federal employees. First of all, though, uh, we're going to ask Desi to give our opening CEU codes. All right. The opening CEU code is 79378. 79378. Now, our first, particip- uh, first participant is uh, a very well-known and well-respected leader of ACBGE, a longtime federal employee who's going to talk to us about uh, particularly some of the issues uh, that have com- uh, compounded and, uh, shall we say, made more less, more complex because of, of, of virtual work. So with uh, that in mind, I'm going to introduce to you Renee Zellickson. Renee, thank you, and go ahead. Thank you very much, and I appreciate the opportunity to, um, to speak with you today. Uh, first, let me say <clears throat> I, I um, I'm a what they call a claim specialist, or a CS as the, as for short, with the Workload Support Unit in the Chicago um, um, Workload Support Unit Office of Social Security. And I do like teleworking um, because um, th- there is uh, less uh, distractions and I have a, a better lighting situation at home than I would at work. The complexities come into play regarding getting JAWS training and working with the ever-changing modernization of the um, applications, which are making things a little more difficult in that uh, when you're tabbing around in JAWS or using whatever JAWS commands, I, I uh, find myself having a difficult problem getting, this, getting those screens to read. I do have some partial vision. And so with the magnification and my reading glasses, I'm able to, um, uh, to work things out. Plus, when I have somebody tell me where on a particular screen I need to do a particular input regarding a change that has to be made, I memorize it. Uh, so I do a lot of memorization, uh, working um, with, uh, with the... Um, technology that I have. I am a Braille user as well as a reading print, so I do have a Braille display, but it's a little slow. Uh, The problem, I think, also for visually impaired persons in general, not just teleworking, but uh, regular working, 
comes into production um, um, and, and being quick. So I'm not sure that that's quite a telework issue. The other issue we have is screen sharing. And the screen sharing that we do with our readers, uh, and the reader is uh, basically the 504 answer to the 508, you know, with, accept, with uh, respect to accessibility. In one particular situation, I, I emailed my reader a document because documents will not open in Word when you're given a specific link to go to and you click on that link. I'm not able to get things to read to me in Word and then trying to to uh, do the JAWS command of uh, the um, the JAWS window, the space and the O. I think it's for the optical reader or to change it from PDF doesn't seem to work. So I emailed the, the link to the reader and the reader is looking at the link while she's screen sharing with me because she's unable to do both at the same time. So that's where the complexity is. It's not like I can go, she can come over to my desk, see the document, or I can, or we can print it out. We can't print anything out. So that's just a couple of the complexities. And the screen sharing doesn't work with viewing the document because part of the toolbar of the screen sharing is blocking the document. And we're using Skype and Teams and uh, mostly uh, Skype to do the uh, screen sharing with. Does that, uh, any questions so far? The clarification needed? When I have a question, if I may, speaking about it more broadly, do you feel uh, that uh, the Social Security Administration uh, or, or, or GSA or anyone in the government has anticipated uh, through their reasonable accommodations policy or their training and support policies any of the complexities associated with telework? Um, speaking as, just as a personal thing, because I'm not I'm not privy yeah, to anything. Based like on your that. own experience and that, of people you've my own to. experience, I don't I don't think so. I don't know that they're looking at at the um, at the broad picture of accessibility and screen sharing. And right now, I don't I don't see um, a way out of that. I'd like I'd like it to be fixed. Quite frankly. I'm hoping to continue at least some telework when we do go back to the office. I like it a lot better uh, than I than working in the office from a from a, a comfort visual standpoint because you don't have the glare of the office lights coming down. So I have a lot less um, uh, glare and it's a lot less eye straining for me when I do have to to use the uh, the uh, the visual aspects of it. Another thing that, that's a problem, and, and it's because the system is so old, is that when you are working with JAWS, most of the time uh, during the day, I have to minimize, I have to shut JAWS off and reload him, uh, the JAWS. And, and when you're typing, my typing is slower now uh, than, um, well, it... it um, it's slower now when I'm working than it is when I'm home because when you're working, when uh, you're typing, sometimes the letters don't appear. JAWS reads the letters, but it doesn't, it doesn't appear on the screen, and you don't know that till after you hit the enter key and the screen is locked and you can't make a change. So it looks like you have a typing error, and sometimes you have to do an extra input. So those are the that, that's another thing. So I don't type quite as fast 
um, at work as I do at home. And it, it, it also happens not just in, in, um, in the emulator that's used, but it, it happens other parts of the, um, of the work area. I do have a concern, not just with telework, but I do have a concern about how many future blind people or visually impaired people will be hired in the government. <laughs> it kind of concerns me because, um, because, I mean, people are leaving, but then I'm expected to retire next year, and I'm finding it more difficult to do the job for the reasons that I described. So, ironically, you feel that, although on the one hand, we know that, uh, for example, the uh, Office of Personnel Management uh, is pressing federal agencies to hire more employees with disabilities. On the other hand, you feel that because of the technology decisions being made and other decisions being made at at agency level or perhaps even centrally, it's becoming harder and harder for blind people to adequately perform these jobs? Uh, I I feel that way. The training, especially uh, you know, with, with the training I'm seeing so far, when they when they have videos, um, when they want to give us some training, some of the stuff is read, but some of the stuff uh, has pictures or things that people are doing or whatever. So those things are not described, and because I've been there. Um, as far as what's, what the rules are, I already know the rules. So when they have the cartoon characters and they're doing whatever it is that they're doing, uh, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really not worried about it for myself, but I'm concerned at, the, um, at the, the training, which my understanding the training is done visually now when people, new people are hired. I don't know that when when the the um, when the screens are pointed out to where to what to do if they are described, I, I don't know that um, that uh, that answer to that. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to get some more insight into the overall uh, accommodations picture, and especially in light of recent major changes uh, on the federal level from from our uh, colleague uh, Pat Sheen in a little, in a little while, but it's. Really important to hear your your firsthand personal experience of it. What I think I think Ray, we are we, we, uh, again. Unless there's something more you want to say, we are going to honor both of your commitments, and we appreciate you uh, for honoring for honoring us with your presence. And okay. we'll and we'll let you go if you need to. And thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. I'll stay for a few more just in case somebody has a question, but then I'll go. Thank you. Great. Okay. Well, in that case, we're going to uh, move along then, and our next pre- presenter. Is going to be um, my uh, my colleague in Avia, Dave Adams. Dave is uh, a quiet person who does uh, immense things with very little fanfare, but uh, he's really one of the backbones of our organizations. He himself is also a, a long time a long time federal uh, employee with the Department of Justice, and he's going to talk to us about the hiring process as it relates to employees with disabilities and uh, blind employees in particular. So, uh, Dave, uh, please take it away. Thanks, Steve, and thanks for the um, kind introduction. Um, many of you may know that over the course of the last couple of years, it has been very difficult to obtain accurate um, employment information with respect to persons with disabilities uh, in the federal government. It seemed that uh, in the last administration, that was not a priority, and that filtered down to the agency levels as well. 
So whereas OPM used to issue annual reports to the president with respect to a hiring of persons with disabilities, um, that seemed to tail off and the last report um, was in 2017. However, the uh, House Committee on Oversight and Reform mandated that a report be put together for its use um, on disability employment in the federal government, specifically looking at issues regarding hiring, retention, and uh, reasonable accommodation requests. So that report was uh, issued on June 11, 2020. Um, and although the specific hiring information ends at 2017, um, it does give some interesting uh, information about hiring statistics, as well as um, some recommendations with respect to increasing the employment of persons with disabilities in the federal government. So let me go through some of the statistics. First of all, as many of you may know, there were two uh, executive orders that were um, issued a decade apart in 2000 and 2010, which mandated that the federal government um, increase its efforts in hiring and retaining employees with disabilities. The 2010 executive order, which was number, let's see, 13-548, actually set some parameters for increasing uh, employment with the goal of hiring 100,000 people between uh, 2011 and 2015. I suppose many people's surprise, um, the government actually exceeded that. During that five-year period, 143,600 persons with disabilities were hired by the federal government. Um, that hiring continued um, at a brisk rate in 2016 and 2017 when another 79,600 persons with disabilities were employed by the federal government. You may, if you are a statistical junkie, which I am not, but I have noticed some disparities in the statistics that are published by various agencies um, that differ somewhat from OPM. And I will say that OPM uses um, interagency transfers as new hires with respect to persons with disabilities. But to be consistent, I believe that they also use um, that figure for persons without disabilities too. So at least if looking at the OPM statistics, <clears throat> while the number may seem a little high, because of the interagency transfers that are considered new hires, at least they're consistent um, in the way they look at both persons with disabilities and persons without disabilities. With respect to retention rates between 2011 and 2017, 39% of persons with disabilities that were hired by the federal government stayed less than a year, and 60% stayed less than two years. And while that may seem high when you compare the statistics to persons without disabilities, 43% of persons without disabilities during the same time period stayed less than a year and 60% the same percentage of persons without dis disabilities um, left with in two years. Um, unfortunately, OPM does not track or report retention data with respect to um, persons with disabilities. So no one can pinpoint the causes contributing to the departure rates, at least among persons with disabilities. There's some controversy as to whether exit interviews should be conducted, and if they are conducted by um, agencies, whether specific questions should be asked <clears throat> with respect to accommodations and other issues that are more unique to employees with disabilities as opposed to those without disability. <laughs> I know in my agency, we do not um, generally conduct um, exit interviews, 
in with those components of our agency um, that do conduct exit interviews, it's rare that questions are asked with respect to um, disability-related issues. What the um, GAO did was they selected three agencies for their study. Um, this was based on a comparison of statistics among those agencies um, that were high on the list of employing persons with disabilities and those that were lowest on the list. And once they whittled those down, they picked a, a large agency, a medium agency, and a small agency. So the three that they selected were the Department of Justice um, as the large agency, the Social Security Administration as the medium-sized agency, and Small Business Administration as the small agency. It seems from the report that difficulties and complications and barriers to employing persons with disabilities were fairly common, no matter the size of the agency, although I will say that for some of the larger agencies, um, centralization of uh, hiring practices and procedures and even training, and I'm sure Pat can address reasonable accommodation issues as well, becomes an issue. In our agency, we, wear, we are very component-centric. Um, there is very little that is centralized in my agency, um, and so there are some disparity in hiring practices and uh, reasonable accommodation provisions and training, um, whereas the smaller agencies that are, are more centralized don't seem to suffer from some of the difficulties that a larger agency does. The um, report addressed a couple of problems that it saw, and I share the views of the GAO with respect to some of these issues. And one of those is with um, regarding training. Um, as many of you know, Persons with disabilities can be hired under a special hiring authority, Schedule A, by which a um, hiring manager can completely bypass the competitive um, hiring procedure and can actually hire a person with a targeted disability without even having to advertise uh, the um, position. <clears throat> there is a wide range of training that is provided by different agencies. And uh, there doesn't seem to be, from what I have been able to glean anyways, any consistency with respect to the type of training that's provided, nor the frequency of the training. And this is, was one of the issues that was raised in the GAO report. Um, I know that for, for several agencies, um, the turnover in hiring managers is pretty high. And um, when training is um, hit or miss, or when it's provided perhaps maybe once every other year or once every three years, there are going to be a number of hiring managers that are employed by uh, the specific agency that don't receive that kind of training. And since this special hiring authority is, is unique to persons with disabilities and goes against what most of them have been trained with respect to com the competitive hiring process, it can be very difficult to um, encourage a hiring manager to consider employing a qualified person with a targeted disability uh, without going through the normal channels and the normal process that is engaged in when um, hiring a new employee is being considered. For those of you who don't know, uh, there are two categories of disability that are considered in the federal government. Um, there's general disability and then targeted disabilities, and, and those with targeted disability are uh, eligible for hiring under Schedule A. 
tar targeted disabilities include um, those who are deaf, blind, partial or complete paralysis and have other significant mobility impairments or psychiatric disabilities. And there are some other disabilities that are included in that group of targeted disabilities. Now, the goal under um, Executive Order 13548 was that each agency would over time uh, reach a um, employment level of 12% for those with disabilities, persons with disabilities, and included in that 12%, the target was for 2% of uh, an agency's employees to um, be persons with targeted disabilities. There is no statistics that I have found um, that indicate or suggest how many people are actually employed by the federal government under Schedule A. I think that is um, something that should be addressed so that um, it can be determined how effective Schedule A has been and may continue to be. And more importantly, how effective training might be um, if it's consistent and um, if the training is a quality training. Very few agencies have met the 2% target, but most agencies, at least as of 2017, have met the 12% target for employing uh, individuals with disabilities. So in addition to um, training under Schedule A, the other significant roadblock that, that I believe exists, and again, this pertains mainly to the larger agencies, um, is finding qualified applicants. So most people who apply for a federal job apply through USA Jobs. There are the means for identifying <laughs> yourself as having a targeted disability in USA Jobs. But since so many people apply through USA uh, Jobs, um, there, there is not really a way without doing resume mining to identify those applicants who might qualify under Schedule A. <clears throat> I know in our uh, agency. Um, one of the components has engaged in a rather vigorous resume mining exercise for the last couple of years to, try to identify qualified applicants under Schedule A. Most components do not. And when we did a poll of federal agencies uh, about five years ago to determine how best to identify qualified applicants, especially those who might be um, qualified under Schedule A, um, we found that those agencies that were um, working aggressively to improve their uh, employment statistics with respect to persons with disabilities and more specifically those with targeted disabilities, they developed within their own agency a database of qualified applicants that was refreshed on a regular basis so that the resumes didn't become stale. Those individuals were then uh, could be then identified to um, hiring managers throughout the agency who were looking to fill positions, recommend that they consider those applicants first since they, since they could be hired under the special hiring authority. Those tended to be the smaller agencies. Um, off the top of my head, I know we remember contacting NASA and the IRS and um, uh, Food and Drug Administration and some of the other smaller agencies and larger agencies that we contacted had not made that decision to go that way. Although uh, recently I heard from the Department of Treasury that they are considering centralizing um, some of the hiring and reasonable accommodation functions uh, of that agency to replace their 
more component-centric um, operation, or at least the way that they have done uh, things over the past several years. So in addition to um, the difficulties with training, under schedule, hiring under Schedule A, and identification of applicants, other difficulties and barriers that um, uh, I believe exist um, include attitudinal barriers. There has been little done that, with respect to most agencies that I am familiar with anyways, to put out some um, employees with disabilities who have been successful in their careers. Um, some of the ideas uh, to do that um, include having special speaker series, including in hiring training um, individuals with disabilities who can speak about their experience with the agency and how they have been successful in performing their jobs, um, including performing aspects of the jobs that most people without a disability would find it if not more than interesting, let me put it that way, uh, to see how we accommodate for um, some of the struggles and challenges that we have in performing those responsibilities and obligations of our, of our employment. The other difficulty I see with um, hiring issues is onboarding employees. And although um, I do not have any statistics, I, I am very curious to know and maybe we can hear from some of you if you've been onboarded during the pandemic, um, if that presents a, an additional barrier having to onboard outside of the normal office um, environment. Just my personal belief is that that would be much more uh, difficult, especially with respect to reasonable accommodations, because you're not going to have that personal interface with your supervisor um, that you would typically have in an office environment. And so reasonable accommodations that are needed um, from the get-go may be more difficult to identify and may be more difficult to obtain as well. Um, so with that, I think I've run my 15 minutes and I will cede to the next speaker unless we have any questions. Well, Dave, I just uh, have my question, but I want to thank you. Uh, that presentation reminded me of a meal in which every morsel is packed with good nutrients. Uh, you, you've given us so much good information. I failed to mention at the beginning that uh, your unique overview and perspective uh, in part came from your, your committee work. And if you want to say a word or two about that. Um, I will say some something briefly. I, again, um, as Renee said, and um, as uh, the uh, introduction to this whole um, presentation today with respect to ACB, I don't speak on behalf of the Department of Justice. Um, I speak uh, from my personal position. I do serve as chair of the Attorney General's Advisory Committee on the Employment of Persons with Disabilities. Unlike other organizations within many agencies, we are not an affinity group in the sense that we don't um, speak for or act on behalf of uh, employees with disabilities at Justice, but we um, do advise the Attorney General with respect to hiring, retention, promotion, and reasonable accommodation issues. Um, and it's been my privilege to serve on that committee for a number of years. Sean Barrett also served on the committee when she was part of Justice. Um, and it's our hope that we um, affect some positive change in at least our agency. Thank you, Dave. Are there any other, any other questions? Any questions for Dave? Okay. <clears throat> I, I, I want to address, um, first of all, I am one of those people that was hired um, in 2000 
And um, I don't have my documents. I can't get them back from the lawyer, but I was hired to be fired. And there is a big problem with the agencies doing that, or at least I'll speak for the Social Security Administration. There, um, there is a lot of problems with um, not just attitude, but you have people that are promoted into management positions that don't get don't, don't the quality of management training that they get. I mean, they're, they've never been managers before. Some of them have been uh, working with just claims or benefits or whatever, and they get promoted into these managerial positions with a lot of um, prejudice. And um, I was um, unlucky enough to be under a, a divisional manager that did not want another blind person in his um, in his unit uh, because he already had one. It wasn't his turn. And it was, uh, I was working in the post side of uh, social security meeting, post side meeting. Right now I'm in the immediate claims area, if you will. But be, when I first started out, I started in what they call the mod, where people after they've received benefits and, and then they have these uh, administrative law judge cases that you have to do. So I started out there and I had a very good work record in my um my payment and accuracy were both in the 90s, and I went through a very, very arduous EEO complaint, and I never could get the, uh, the ear of the, uh, of the EEOC, and I, I did settle, but I do feel that the managers should not be immune from civil prosecution because I was harassed even after I won, I mean, I had, there were pictures of the, of the uh, unit manager, of the divisional manager uh, stalking me within the unit. And then at that time, I had a supervisor that called me over to her desk. And she, you know, it, it makes me almost cry when I kind of relive that sort of thing. But she said, you know, Renee, you were such a good worker, and I have to apologize for what I'm about to do to you. But I don't have a choice because if I don't do what I have to do to you right now, then I'm going to be fired. So, you know, there's a lot. And I don't and I think that uh, I think that needs to be said. And I'm glad I went first because this way I would, you know, I, I wanted I wanted to uh, it's apropos to address what was just said, because that is a big problem. I don't know that that problem has been solved. Yes, I was in another region when that happened, but um, nevertheless, I um, I think that that's a problem because because when when uh, you're we're hired, in other words, they want to have the numbers, but they don't want to retain you. Is what it is. Well, so it's a hiring authority, oh, yeah. but but not necessarily anything more. Renee, we're, we're, we're very grateful that you, stood up, <laughs> that you stood up to the pressure and the harassment that you came through oh, and you yeah. ended up having a, 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 good, a good career. But I do think that something needs to, I don't know what, but I, I, um, I, I do think that, that this organization and, um, needs to find some kind of legal way. And I really, really wish I could get those uh, because after seven years, the documents get get ruined and I've tried getting in touch with the attorney because I wanted them for my own records.
because this is something that really needs to be addressed because I don't know that the Justice Department really knows what's going on behind the scenes. And so at least I got to tell somebody in the Justice Department that this really did happen. And it, and for all I know, it can still happen. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. Maybe after you retire next year, it's something uh, 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 that you can help spearhead. We'll look forward to talking about that when, when that day comes. And I don't know how to do that, but... I still have my EEO case number, would you believe? And I have the attorney's <laughs> name and the address... And, and, you know, well, it's just, it's just, it's something that, that I, I, I wouldn't yeah. pick a fight with you. Let's put it that way. I wouldn't <laughs> pick a fight with you. All right. And thank you again. Now we're going to turn, uh, 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 apropos the reference to Sean Barrett, we're going to turn to Sean in a moment. I'm going to describe Sean in the spirit of the times as a hybrid person. What do I mean by that? I mean, someone who used to be a federal employee, as Dave has noted, but who is now working in the private sector. And maybe she'll tell us a little bit about that or about the comparison or, or whatever she wants, but she brings to bear a wealth of experience. She's been a long-time, extremely valuable uh, member of Avia, a member of our board, uh, who's contributed in, in in so many ways, and we're very grateful to have Sean here today. So, Sean, go ahead. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, I attended my first Avia meeting back in the 70s and ran into a guy who spoke on the program who was an assistant U.S. attorney. And he said, this is a great job to have. I have my own caseload, but I get free office, have accommodations, and my own ca- I can do what I want with my cases pretty much. I go to court like everybody else. This is pretty close to private practice. And I was a law student at the time, and I thought, that sounds like a pretty good job, working for the government, you know, and having a caseload. So <clears throat> the summer between my second and third year of law school, I clerked in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. One of my professors helped me get the job. And when you all listen to this, you're going to think, this girl knew somebody. Did she ever get anything on her own? And I don't know. I can't answer any of that. But so I met, I ran into this woman who was an administrative assistant in the department that I clerked in. And she and I became buddies. And so after I graduated from law school, I started applying to U.S. attorney's offices and applied in Miami, New Orleans, Washington, D.C. I didn't apply in Jackson, Mississippi, where I live, because I was told that the U.S. attorney at the time did not hire anyone unless they'd had five years of private practice experience And the scuttlebutt was he did not want to hire any African-Americans or women. So that was a closed door. But he retired in June of 1980. And the court had appointed a young guy as the U.S. attorney. And guess what? My friend, who was my uh, administrative assistant friend, had then become the director of the newly formulated EEO office in the executive office for U.S. attorneys. And she and I stayed in touch, and I told her of my interest in the office. She basically wrote him and said, we'd like to suggest you hire this person. I really don't know what she said. And she told him, if you hire her, we'll allocate 
another slot to your office for a reader. You know, there were GS5 readers back then, GS4. <clears throat> so that's how I got into this job on under Schedule A. There was a hiring freeze at the time. This was right at the end of the Carter administration. So, you know, it's been, I haven't told many people that I got in under Schedule A. I was like, oh, you know, this is not a competitive situation here. But that's what Schedule A is. I mean, how do you compare, if you have, especially with the biases that exist, uh, compare me? I was a year out of law school. I had taken a job with the state of Mississippi uh, due to the fact that I had helped the governor and worked on his campaign. I got a legal job in the state agency <clears throat> and then got this job as an assistant U.S. attorney. For the first three years while I was there, I did criminal prosecutions. And one day, the U.S. attorney called me into his office and he said, we've got a little problem. I said, oh, what's that? And he said, a certain judge who was old and about to take senior status and was tough and harsh and everybody was afraid of him and he never paid attention to recommendations that the government would make in guilty pleas because he threw the book at everybody and he was a holy terror. He said, this judge does not want you back in his courtroom anymore. Well, I had just gotten a bank robbery conviction and a jury trial. There was another lawyer in our office and he said he didn't want him back in his office either because he was too much uh, like, the, he called him the U.S. Attorney's social worker because of the recommendations that he would make in criminal cases that this judge thought was much too lenient. So the U.S. Attorney said, you know, if he were younger and not on his way out, I would probably file some kind of writ of mandamus or something with the Fifth Circuit. But I just want you to know that that's the way it is. <clears throat> well, he was the only judge in my area. There were three judges in the Southern District of Mississippi, one in Jackson and two on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. So partially due to this, I transferred to the civil division of our office and I had big dreams of being a prosecutor. I had clerked for two summers in criminal work and I just thought that's what I wanna do. I transferred to the civil division. It was probably the best thing that ever happened to my career because criminal, Law is a very narrow field and provided legal support for the financial litigation unit and handled a general civil caseload. When you, when, for the government, that includes, uh, oh, you may be doing an eviction for a rural housing tenant who owes the government and won't pay their rent. An eviction is an absolute last resort. It may be a student loan that you're trying to collect or an SBA loan. Uh, it may be from the defensive side, uh, I represented the, the VA, for example, in a medical malpractice case. So it's a whole variety of things. Um, so I did transfer to the civil division and got an opportunity to uh, go to Washington in 92 and 93 for 15 months, right after the ADA went into effect, to work for the civil rights division uh, disability rights section. And you really can't go to work for the Civil Rights Division without it changing your life. Uh, there were people in there from the janitor on up who were committed to civil rights. And it was a very good 
and inspirational experience. One day I was sitting in my office in DC and I got a call from an assistant attorney general's office. He was like the third principal deputy. He uh, later went to jail and uh, he was a, a friend of Bill Clinton, uh, Webster Hubble. And the girl said, I see you're at our town hall meeting and requested a meeting with Mr. Hubble. And I said, no, I didn't. I was not at the town hall meeting. But if you're scheduling meetings, I'd like to meet with him. So I met with him. And as the result of that, um, the DOJ began to decentralize enforcement of the ADA. Uh, they were not too happy with that because that give, gave them less control over the process in implementing this new statute. However, it turned out to be a great thing for them because there were so many more lawyers throughout the country enforcing the ADA uh, than just the few in Washington. Um, and then when I returned to Mississippi, I, our office became a part of a pilot project to enforce the ADA. Technology, I used uh, a cap, of course, to buy, to our office purchase training and computer equipment from them. <clears throat> After 9-11, uh, everybody was just so hyper, you know, frightened about security issues. And so <clears throat> I was unable to access the computer system remotely because of security issues. And that was kind of a, a challenge. You know, since <clears throat> Section 508 is not a civil rights statute, it's a procurement statute. I really decided that I would try to work with management both in DC and in my local office to try to resolve any access issues that I had. Um, all, all, all the time I was there, I had a full-time assistant who accompanied me to court and to meetings and depositions. I think I needed somebody with me who could read things on the spot in those particular venues. You know, when I think back on my career, <clears throat> I spent over 35 years litigating for the government. Uh, a lot of it was motion practice, and many cases were resolved without going to court. The electronic courtroom is now part of the process, and I never really had an opportunity to test that with my computer equipment. They had this system called Elmo that was this big, huge camera that you would put down on the page and run it across the page and the text would show up on the screen. And so I don't really know how accessible that was. Um, I did have a trial scheduled and I did practice with that equipment with my legal assistant <clears throat> doing the scanning. Dave mentioned training for hiring managers. It's so critical. We tried to get the same kind of training, mandatory training, that's, that they require all employees for sexual harassment training to include disability awareness and disability hiring. Uh, we never got that done while I was there. Um, <clears throat> the Justice has a training center located on the campus of the University of South Carolina in Columbia. And we would go there for training. And it was a state, it is a state-of-the-art facility. 
when I would go, it was always this issue about, was someone going with me? Was I going alone? Usually I, I took someone with me uh, to navigate the facility uh, in the evening. There was very little food. If you wanted to go to dinner, you went away from the facility. Um, and, you know, I just kind of decided that I really have a right to the same access as everybody else. If I want to run to my room in a break and make a phone call or check email or they had a bank of computers for everybody else and that was hooked up to the network and everybody else could leave a laptop at home. And, and so I said, okay, I want you to put JAWS on a computer, which they did, and let me use it while I'm there, um, you know, in a vacant office. And we did a number of different things about who would assist me in training. You know, I think you can have all the policies and programs in place that, and those are great, and we have to have all that, but it really takes an individual hiring manager who's willing to say, okay, I believe this person can do the job. And Schedule A is just an attempt to level the playing field and provide opportunities that other people that people with disabilities just would not have. It was a great place for me to be. Now that I'm in private practice, <clears throat> uh, there was a law firm in Alabama who that uh, we both have worked with an architect who does ADA enforcement on the national level. And he knew about me and them, kind of got us together. And that's it's been a good experience. <clears throat> but my government experience was good in the sense that I never have to worry about fees. You know, if the IRS screwed up something, I could tell them or whoever the client agency was and tell them to get their checkbook out, you know, and you're going to have to pay for this one. Um, but the private sector is such a totally different, a different world. But when I interviewed for this job, the two partners came to my office in, here in Jackson and we sat down and I kind of almost apologetically started in with, well, I, I come with a price tag. And of course, you know, these people, uh, they do disability law. They represent plaintiffs under the ADA and families and parents with children under IDEA. We've just started that in the last year and a half. And this partner says, well, I think we can do as good a job or better at accommodating you than the federal government. I thought, okay. Doesn't seem to be a big issue for you. But technology changes all the time. And if, even if you just have a phone, you know that upgrades can just break it. What works today doesn't work tomorrow. And our issues are very hard to really bring to the attention. Uh, like at DOJ, there were so many levels between me and those people who were making decisions about technology purchases and it's very hard to get our issues in front of those people. But that's kind of all I have. I told Steve and Renee, I said, now, I don't have any up-to-date information. You've had a lot of timeless information, Sean, which is very up-to-date because a lot of the issues, as you have pointed out, that you encountered in the course of your career are still issues today. They may express themselves in different words or different terms, but they're really the same structural issues, the issues of of training, of attitude, 
of acceptance of bureaucracy of equipment these are these unfortunately are not going away and you have uh, expressed them as i say in a very timeless way and put them into a context that i think uh, makes it much uh, more feasible for us to understand them and to begin to think about how to deal with them and i can't think of anybody who has kept up the fight more nobly and for longer than you and probably with tremendous results and we thank you very much uh, are there any questions Yes, there is a hand raised from Im- Imka Dur. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Yes, this is this is Imka Dur, and I've been listening with interest. Uh, I'm I've been a, a physical scientist for NOAA in the Department of Commerce since 2000, and I'm totally blind, and I am now also a hiring manager. Uh, as a first-line supervisor. And I'm, you know, to summarize, I don't think I have an exact question, but my thoughts are, I think, some really important parts of retention are that the people that are hired are really fully qualified. And uh, I think sometimes, as I think an earlier speaker pointed out, there may be a tendency to hire someone that maybe not be fully qualified, which could then, you know, in the interest of numbers, or hiring someone quickly through one of the special authorities, but then not not going back, uh, not making sure that the person is really fully qualified, and that probably hurts. It probably in the end hurts everybody, and so I I appreciate the process of Schedule A. And the other preferences that help people with disabilities and others. And I also, as a, you know, having recently been on the hiring side of things, also recognize the importance of making sure um, that the, you know, the quali- fully qualified applicants are hired. And there is a big difference between what gets passed to the hiring manager as minimally qualified and the actual, really, what, who is really qualified for the position. So I think that's both. For hiring managers and both for for applicants, also important to recognize. And I think the the two biggest access issues I run into also are procurement or or of training courses or equipment that ends up not being fully accessible. It may be checking the box of thyroid compliant, but then not really being useful. And then also the the intersection of accessibility and security of why well, we need to do this for security reasons, but it's not accessible. And then security becomes the overarching argument. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I'm wondering if this, what this group can do to help in those, especially in those two respects, because I think they, as I think the first speaker mentioned, these kind of things make life more difficult for people who do get into the jobs and are not able to are struggling with you know the job and may prefer to go into a different sector so that's all i have to say thank you for the interesting perspective thank you this is a discussion that has to be continued but i'm better i'm sure of one thing i bet that you as a hiring manager never confuse ability to do the job with the necessity of adopting somewhat different means uh, for doing it I'm sure that you would never make that that mistake and never make that confusion. And uh, I appreciate your point of view. Uh, And now we're going for our last 
a presenter to turn. I've always wanted to be able to uh, introduce a presenter by saying, and now I give you someone who needs no introduction. But that's about what I'm doing here because everybody in ACB, I think, knows Pat Sheehan and those who don't should. Pat has done so many things in this organization, uh, taken on so many uh, responsibilities, including very difficult ones, high level and low level. Uh, he is really one of the stalwarts of ACB for many years uh, out, of, out, of, out of Maryland uh, with his perspective on which bears upon all we've been discussing so far on recent changes in the accommodations process, which will bear particularly upon the technology needs of all of us. But without further ado, I'm pleased to give you Pat Sheehan. Pat, go ahead. Thank you, Steve. Uh, just so that we have enough time for questions, how are we doing on time? It is 331. 331. Uh, 331. Or 331. Yeah. 331. Okay, <laughs> great. So I will make sure I hit my fairly quickly then. Um, it is Pat Sheehan. I am uh, 508 Project Manager at Department of Veterans Affairs. I want to talk a little bit about um, 508, which deals with uh, mostly systems uh, applications in the federal government. So anything that we procure, use, maintain, or develop falls under, uh, under Section 508, and that's what I deal with. Uh, Section 504, which is mostly where reasonable accommodations come in to play, deals with the accommodations. In the case of what I see a lot at, at Department of Veterans Affairs and throughout the federal government, that could be ZoomText, Fusion, uh, JAWS, basically are the, are the um, NVDA, are basically the, the technologies that the blind folks would be using. <clears throat> My office, uh, 508 office and the 504 office, reasonable accommodations, should form a partnership so that we can move uh, things forward and be consistent and help people with disabilities. You have to have uh, the applications working with the accommodation to have an effective, very effective uh, way to do your job, basically. And that is a struggle. One of the things that has happened in the last, what is it now, eight, nine months? Uh, at the end of September, at the beginning of October, uh, we got the word from uh, the DOD, Computer Electronic Accommodations Program, that the accommodations uh, that they were providing to the most of the federal government, at least the 85 partner agencies that they had a partnership with, uh, that they were no longer going to be those supplying those accommodations to those offices. And that was a shock to my, um, my people over at Department of Veterans Affairs and a whole bunch of other people. <clears throat> the uh, DOD gave us the accommodations. They would supply the accommodations. So in my case, it could be JAWS, it could be a CCTV, rail displays, that sort of thing. They also supplied training on the accommodation and there was supply needs assessment. And now they had taken away the first two elements of that and they were just going to supply now <clears throat> needs assessment. But for the most part, uh, as a disabled person, you kind of know what your accommodation is going to be. It's probably something that you're already using at home. So you want the same thing in the office. And so uh, that was a shock to our systems. Not only were the services going away, but since the services now went back, in my case, to Department of uh, Veterans Affairs and to all the other 85 agencies that were partners with DOD, it went back to them as our beginning of October. None of us had the budget in place to 
supply these accommodations. DOD had been doing it for 20 years. We got very used to <clears throat> DOD supplying us all, supplying all of our needs. All of a sudden, we had to put a budget together. We had to put people together. We had to train people how the accommodations were going to be done. And you had to <coughs> accommodations within the agency going forward. <clears throat> so it has been an interesting six or seven months. Uh, the accommodations, you know, it's still required by law that you need to supply those accommodations, uh, making ensuring that the agencies have the right people that they know what a braille note taker is. They kind of think that that is a person sometimes. Uh, what the <laughs> what the uh, jargon is all about uh, is uh, you know um, uh, something that their education over the last twenty years hasn't supplied them. So we are struggling, I would say, in that environment. <clears throat> to make matters more, even more interesting, on the downside, would be in what was it? Uh, April, I guess it was April timeframe. April timeframe, we got a second uh, notice from uh, GSA indicating to us that the uh, program for Federal Relay that they had been dealing with for about 20 years was now going to move from, the, um, from GSA supplying the Federal Relay services, including video relay service, from, uh, from their contract over to the FCC which means that it was going to go back to the offices uh, or the departments as Department of Veterans Affairs to supply their own people and their own contracts for uh, within a month for deaf folks, blind, uh, deaf blind folks uh, who depend on federal relay service uh, and, and that sort of accommodation. They did, because so many agencies protested, extend that for six months so that GSA will go, will hold that for six months. But another situation where you needed to now uh, get some in-house talent who knows about uh, federal relay service, interpreting services, all that stuff that was supplied by GSA now has to be supplied internally by the organizations. So all of a sudden the 504 uh, departments, the ones that deal with accommodations are extremely busy. Uh, they need to to train up new people, uh, set up new budgets to be able to afford something that was done outside. Uh, and so that has been a lot of work. Um, so that has proven to be interesting times. A couple of uh, things that have come up with respect to uh, Section 508 and 504. <clears throat> now that uh, the accommodations are being done in-house by a lot of the agencies, um, the agencies, uh, one, they had to figure out what the accommodations are going to be. But two, one of the things that I have been seeing uh, with, you know, within Department of Veterans Affairs, and I think it, it happens elsewhere also, is that when you have an individual who receives an accommodation, you have to ensure that that application that they're working with is meeting uh, technical standards. And so you're not going to be, uh, to make it specific, uh, JAWS and a Braille display, Zoom text fu or Fusion uh, is not going to be effective if the application itself, uh, it does not meet uh, Section 508 requirements. <clears throat> you need to be able to ensure that the applications that an individual uses who is coming on board meets those requirements. And it is up to the 
project managers, the people developing that application, uh, putting that application into use within the uh, department, within whatever, uh, whatever federal agency that you're in, needs to ensure that that application is compliant. And if it's not compliant, then they have to find a way, they have to be able to accommodate that individual so that individual can effectively do their job. <clears throat> Being able to effectively do your job is an interesting um, issue. I think that um, in the past, uh, agencies have uh, basically distributed the accommodation, whether it's JAWS, Fusion, let's say, something like that, and think that their job is done. What I think agencies are now starting to find out is that the, to have an effective accommodation, it has to be two issues. You have to have the accommodation as a JAWS Fusion Braille displays or whatever, generic. And you also need to have that application that is going to meet the technical requirements of 508. And if you don't have that, then it's my thinking that the individual has not been effectively accommodated. Now we have seen um, within some of the agencies and mine has been guilty also, <clears throat> that we have gone in and we have had to script certain uh, applications um, to uh, force that accommodation with the um, uh, with certain of the uh, applications that we have, older applications, I'd say. But that takes the uh, application developers off the hook. Uh, they don't need to fix the application if they can, um, uh, if they if they can get the application to force to be used or scripted to be used with JAWS or let's say Zoom Tech Fusion. That is not a great solution. Uh, one of the things that we are trying to do now is to be able to put the onus back on application developers that the applications that they are putting forward uh, meet the technical requirements and then it will work sufficiently with the uh, accommodation that is, <clears throat> that is being used by that individual. I think it is also important and another issue, and this is a combination issue of uh, really what's, what we see in position descriptions and what we see uh, with individuals with disabilities having to be having to use. And this goes back to something that Renee really was talking about. If you take an individual who has to produce a certain amount of work in a certain amount of time, using a braille display in JAWS, uh, even with an application that is accessible, and a lot of them aren't, uh, it's very difficult to meet those production standards based on uh, your use of even that access technology. <clears throat> what I would like to see happen, and it is happening very slowly as, I, as I've worked throughout my agency, that um, individuals with disabilities are given different, uh, different production standards to be able to produce X amount, not as much as, as, the, as let's say the non-disabled individual, they still need to do the essential job uh, functions of the job, but rather than producing 50, perhaps they produce 25, and that would give them a, uh, a, you know, allow them to get a good rating on their end of year rating so they do not get dismissed for being uh, insufficient, for providing insufficient amount of work. I think the production requirements are difficult uh, for people with disabilities to meet. I think that, um, uh, it's a question of working 
uh, with HR. It's a question of when you're in, in an HR office that, um, uh, that you look at, can the person uh, perform the critical elements of the job? Uh, what are the applications that they have to use? Are those applications, first of all, compliant? Do they work well with the AT? And what can the person be reasonably respect, uh, expected to do to meet those requirements of the job? Uh, it's interesting also is that the hiring manager for that person also is responsible for that output. And so if you are a person, a supervisor, and I am, and I've got people working with, for me who are disabled, but are not under production. But if I had, I would think that what person X who is disabled would need to meet would be reduced in, in a certain way so that they would work hard, produce, let's say, if they need to produce, if they can produce 50% or 75% of what someone else can produce, that that uh, would also be reflected in my position description so that I wouldn't be dinged because someone who is disabled below me is getting dinged because they can't produce the same amount of work with their access access technologies. Okay, so Chris Prentice. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon. Uh, appreciate your presentation. Um, uh, working as one of the contracts attorneys for Texas Workforce Commission, we get a look at the uh, the a lot of the procurements before they go out. And um, one of the things that I've noticed because we've We've been buying some big systems and things for our agency and, and, and trying to upgrade and things like that. And a lot of that stuff has not been fully accessible with JAWS and other uh, assistive technology. Uh, and I think what I've found is the problem is that these people that are, are bidding uh, don't have anybody with any uh, AT experience on their side of the, the deal. And one of my suggested revisions to is that they would be required to have have someone with AT knowledge either contracted to be with to work for them or on their staff uh, so as to make them compliant whether it's 508 or uh, the requirements that we have in within our procurements because uh, it in, ends up being backwards trying to get them to, to fix it after we've accepted it because they'll our agency will take it with exceptions and give them time to make those repairs or those, you know, those modifications. But if they had somebody that knew what they were doing to begin with, we could avoid a lot of these problems. Chris, let me interrupt to ask Debbie to give the final CEU a code, if she would. Okay, it is 21272. Again, that's 21272. And we thank Deb Lewis and we thank you, Desi. And uh, we, we thank all our presenters. Pat, you've given us a, a wonderful roadmap for some of the new issues that have to be confronted and things that have to be done. Uh, I look forward to talking to you uh, about them more in the future. Thanks, everyone. Dave. Yes. Thank you, everybody.